Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got high hopes In the two decades before the rise of television culture, presidential candidates often relied on tunes from stage and screen for their campaign songs. These songs typically lavished praise on the candidate and cited his noble qualities. Hello Dolly became Hello Lyndon for Lyndon Johnson in 1964, and Richard Nixon used Buckle Down with Nixon, set to the tune Buckle Down When Saki, from the musical Best Foot Forward in 1968. Perhaps the most famous parody campaign song of this era was Frank Sinatra's recording of the number High Hopes for John F. Kennedy's 1960 campaign a song made popular by the 1959 Frank Capra film, A Hole in the Head. The 2016 campaign has witnessed a resurgence of stage and screen music in both official and unofficial campaign contexts. Today, Naomi Graber, assistant professor of musicology from the University of Georgia, and Alyssa Harbert, assistant professor of music history from DePaul University, join the team at Tracks on the Trail to discuss candidate-inspired musical parodies of Lin-Manuel Miranda's blockbuster musical Hamilton and the ways in which historical musicals have shaped the mythology surrounding our nation's origins. This is Sarah Kitts for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Chugga 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 chug, chugga chugga chug, campaign music. Chugga 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 chug, chugga chugga chug, chugga chugga chug, tracks on the trail. Tracks on the Trail. In this month's news from the trail, we uncover candidates' silver screen dreams and how they play out on stages across the campaign. Recently, the presidential candidates are giving their regards to Broadway. Known to have a flair for the dramatic, Donald Trump has incorporated his favorite musical, The Phantom of the Opera, into his campaign. Trump has played both the title song and music of the night at his rallies. He also gives his own special nod to the silver screen by blasting the parachutes from the film Air Force One as he disembarks his private jet directly into campaign rallies. The Rolling Stones have continued to express their disapproval of Trump using their music, but Trump shows no sign of stopping. Vocal Bernie Sanders supporter Neil Young has announced he is fine with Trump using his songs, just wishing the Republican nominee would have asked. In other news, the now-finished Cruise campaign is being sued for improper usage of music on the trail. AudioSocket, a music licensing company, claims Cruz violated the license agreement by using two pieces of music in his political advertisements and is requesting $2 million plus in damages. Much was said on the internet about Bernie Sanders walking out to DMX's Where the Hood At at a rally in Lancaster, California. Many were shocked that Sanders would do such a thing, as the rap song features anti-gay and transphobic lyrics. However, the video's creator later admitted that he manipulated the footage of Sanders on the trail. Simone Sanders, press secretary for the campaign, tweeted, Never thought I'd have to say this, but no, Bernie Sanders did not walk out to a DMX song in Lancaster earlier this week. 
stranger to celebrity support, Hillary Clinton hosted another star-studded concert on June 6th. The concert, titled She's With Us, featured Christina Aguilera, John Legend, Ricky Martin, Stevie Wonder, Andre Day, and others. Past Clinton concerts have included Demi Lovato, Katy Perry, Elton John, and Jamie Foxx. You have to think about it and you have to feel it in your guts. Bernie Sanders collaborated with Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth to create a new track called Feel It In Your Guts. According to The Guardian, the song features a 12-string acoustic composition mixed in with snippets of Sanders' speeches. In related news, artists such as Bass Nectar, Z-Trip, and Cobra Starship collaborated to make a hashtag Raise for Bernie compilation. The compilation is on SoundCloud, and consists of dance music for those that rave with Bernie in their hearts. Not only has Hamilton dominated the music charts and the Tony Awards, the founding father has also found his way into contemporary American presidential politics. Who would have thunk it? In a previous Tracks on the Trail podcast, we discussed Hamiltrump, a parody of Hamilton mocking Donald Trump. A new Hamilton parody has surfaced, this time tackling Hillary Clinton. From the YouTube channel Above Average, Hillary Clinton Ruins Hamilton features Joanna Bradley playing a not-quite-hip-enough Hillary who struggles to understand the hip-hop musical. You know, we should get someone to write a musical about me. You know, Hillary Clinton. You know, my name is Hillary Clinton. Something like that. Okay, yeah, we're going to look into that. The real Hillary Clinton, however, seems to be a fan of Hamilton. In November 2015, she tweeted the musical's lyric, They Don't Have a Plan, They Just Hate Mine, in response to the GOP debate. And more recently, she released a Women's History Month playlist on Spotify and dedicated a spot to the Schuyler sisters. Whether it's the Broadway stage or the political stage, the candidates indeed prove there's no business like show business in 2016. And that's all the news from the Tracks on the Trail communications team this time. For more of the latest, check out tracksonthetrail.com. This is Dana Gorzolani Mostak for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Unlike Clinton, Trump, Carson, and Cruz, Bernie Sanders has not given his regards to Broadway. That is, until a June 4th rally in Los Angeles, where iconic stage and screen legend Dick Van Dyke burst into a cheerful parody of We Love You, Conrad from the Tony Award-winning musical Bye Bye Birdie. The song, which is sung by a gaggle of teenage girls to their teen idol Conrad Birdie, or in Van Dyke's performance, Bernie, is perhaps appropriate as the birdie-bernie play on words dominated the news cycle the last week in March after a small bird perched on Sanders' lectern mid-speech. The candidate even tweeted out, pun intended, an image of himself and the avian interloper with the slogan, Together, and the memes, songs, and Bernie Sanders hashtag were quick to follow. According to one Twitterista, quote, it's quite clear who Mother Nature endorses for president. Perhaps. 
but Father Time, or at least the Associated Press, has spoken otherwise. In retrospect, Van Dyke chose the wrong track from the musical. The press declared Hillary Clinton the presumptive nominee as of June 6th, so barring a major upset, Van Dyke's next performance will likely be the show's title song, Bye Bye Birdie, or in this case, Bye Bye Bernie. Seeing Double, Presidential Parodies and the Art of the Broadway Musical. This is Naomi Graber, Assistant Professor of Musicology at the University of Georgia, speaking for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. Picture this scene in your mind. American flags are strewn about a platform set with two podiums, and an audience sits, wrapped with anticipation. A gentleman in a clean-cut suit steps out from behind a curtain, but instead of delivering a stump speech, he begins rapping. How does a bastard, racist, racist, son of a millionaire and a mogul, dropped in the middle of a race of the Republicans in tatters, a party nearly shattered, somehow become the only one that mattered? The front runner. What you just heard is the beginning of Hamiltrump by the sketch comedy group Rad Motel. Hamiltrump parodies the opening number of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, a Broadway musical that opened in 2015, which tells the story of the titular founding father. Like most comedies, the laughs in Rad Motel's sketch come from the disconnect between expectations and realization. Flags and podiums usually imply serious discussions and real policy platforms, not rapping and insults. But the presence of Hamilton also contributes to the comedic effect. Any audience familiar with the original not only hears the actor reciting the lyrics, but compares those lyrics to the real opening of Hamilton. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence impoverished and squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? The ten dollar The racist billionaire Trump, Rad Motel implies, is the opposite of the scruffy but brilliant Hamilton. This comic reversal is at the heart of the satirical act of parody, an art that relies on doubleness. The audience sees and hears the original and its parody side by side in their minds, with the comedy resulting from the ironic distance between the two. Parody has a long history in electoral politics, and Rad Motel is not the only group who has found Hamilton a useful tool in 2016. A self-described bunch of millennials who have too much free time on their hands crowdsourced a Google Doc of an entirely new libretto to Hamilton called Jeb, an American Disappointment, based on the Bush campaign. Comedians have also turned to other musicals to comment on the presidential election. 
Late Night host Jimmy Kimmel reunited Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick of 2001's The Producers. The original show tells the story of two crooked showmen who raise one million dollars by promising all of their investors a 50% stake in the show. Then they put on a hundred thousand dollar flop and try to run off with the extra money, but the plan fails when the show becomes a hit. In Kimmel's version, which he calls "trumped," two political consultants raise money for a terrible presidential candidate. And plan to keep the extra cash when the candidate inevitably drops out. The candidate, of course, is Trump, and the consultants are left in the same lurch when his campaign takes off. Musicals, in general, are good raw material for parody because they also rely on a kind of doubleness. In musicals, the story is both depicted in the action and then retold through the songs. This doubled narrative allows characters to explain their thought processes to the audience, to tell rather than to show. There's no business like show business. From Annie, get your gun is a good example of this kind of number. In both musicals and their parodies, this allows the author to highlight the ridiculousness of the characters' actions. What seems to be a logical sequence of events, if looked at one by one, appears utterly ludicrous when taken as a whole. It is no coincidence that the number from the producers that features most prominently in Trumped is the beginning of "We Can Do It." Don't you see, Bloom, darling Bloom, glorious Bloom? It's so simple. Step one: we find the worst play ever written. Step two: we hire the worst director in town. Step three: I raise two million dollars. Two? Yes, one for me, one for you. There's a lot of little old ladies out there. Step four: we hire the worst actors in New York and open up Broadway. And before you can say step five, we close on Broadway, take our two million, and go to Rio. Rio? Nah, that'd never work. Oh, ye of little faith. In Trumped, this step-by-step plan for defrauding investors is transformed into a step-by-step plan for defrauding political donors. They were a pair of political consultants who needed a break. That's it. We're finished. Through. Kaput. Ah,、uh, don't say that, Max. Let's face it, Bloom. We haven't had a winning campaign in years. Ugh. Max, do you realize that under the right circumstances, it might be possible for us to make more money from a losing candidate than from a winner? What did you just say? First, we find a bad candidate, then we raise money like crazy, and we promise all the donors an ambassadorship to Italy or or Sweden or Armenia. Then, when the public figures out what a nutcase our guy is, he drops out of the race, and we keep all the dough. Oh, darling Bloom, glorious Bloom, you bloody、oh, genius, you Max, don't. But wait. Although in the parody version, Lane and Broderick don't sing, anyone familiar with the original show would hear those flourishes in the background, adding an extra touch of silliness to the proceedings. Furthermore, in musicals, characters tend to sing their subtext. In other words, what characters sing is understood to be their true feelings, even if their actions outside of the song contradict their lyrics. This works well with the idea of parody, which often makes the subtext of the original into the text of the new version. 
When applied to presidential candidates, this allows authors to play on the idea that music equals truth, and so by singing, candidates seem to reveal their true intentions beneath the political doublespeak. For example, in Hamill Trump, one narrator comically explains the candidate's strategy to win the presidency. Scamming for every, every vote he can get his hands on Planning for the White House, see him now As he stands at the Capitol building with a Bible in hand Make America great again without a real plan Make America great again with just real plans To return to the idea of ironic distance in parody This works well with the larger concept of the musical itself both historical musicals like Hamilton and backstage musicals like The Producers are often retellings of the Cinderella story, whether it's A Chorus Girl Made Good in 42nd Street or The Unknown Immigrants Rise to Power in Hamilton, or even a contentious group of colonists becoming a nation in 1776. When a form that usually glorifies this pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps story is applied to the lives of Trump and Bush, two very wealthy men, hilarity ensues. But this disjunct between form and content also comments on what type of people our culture now considers heroes. Each of the backstage and historical musicals mentioned above reimagines the American dream to suit contemporary audiences. As Mark Roth observes, in 1933, 42nd Street emphasized New Deal-era cooperation. And Alyssa Harbert notes that the class and racial politics of the 1960s inform many aspects of 1776. Hamilton's hip-hop-infused score and multiracial cast emphasizes the melting pot and immigrant sensibility of the 21st century. So putting the very wealthy and very white Bush or Trump at the center of such a show points out the irony of what kinds of people our contemporary culture makes into heroes. Indeed, in Hamilton, the title character declares that just like my country, I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, emphasizing the classic vision of the American dream. But the nation as embodied in the milquetoast version of Bush in Jeb is not young, scrappy, and hungry, just excitable and jumpy, ready to latch on to the next celebrity who comes along, no matter how unworthy. The ironic distance in Trump works slightly differently. Kimmel's version of the producers draws similarities rather than differences between the devious scheme at the heart of the original show and what Kimmel sees as the disingenuous nature of Trump's campaign. We all hope that the electoral process is populated by serious people who genuinely want to serve the nation, but Trump portrays the political world as nothing more than theater a medium that depends on people pretending to be something they're not. The ironic distance isn't between the parody and the parodied, but between the performance and how we hope the world really works. The musical styles of Hamilton and the producers also reinforce this ironic distance. 
The Ten Dual Commandments from Hamilton is a good example of how this works. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. Number one, the challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Number two, if they don't grab a friend, that's your second. Your lieutenant, when there's reckoning to be reckoned. Number three, have your seconds meet face to The original song from Hamilton is based on the Ten Crack Commandments by the notorious B.I.G. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, it's the Ten Crack Commandments. Why? Uh, uh, both Miranda and Biggie describe the rules of a dubious but sometimes glamorous illegal activity with a laid-back, confident delivery over the slow, boom-bap beat that is associated with classic gangster rap. All musical signifiers of coolness, power, and control. In Jeb, this is revised as the Ten Debate Commandments, throwing into sharp relief the fictional Bush's timidity and dorkiness. If Hamilton and Biggie are gangsters in both the good and bad sense of the word, Bush is most certainly the opposite. In Trumped, the closing number of the sketch, which was newly written for Kimmel, also draws on musical style to make its point. We needed a chump to put on the stump. A frumpy, grumpy, jumpy named Donald J. Trump. He's The song practically screams Broadway, with its rapid strings of internal rhymes, syncopated horn parts, and shimmering hi-hat percussion. From the producers of The Producers comes the movie that'll make America great again. Nathan Lane, Matthew Broderick, and Cloris Leachman star in You've Been Trumped. Trumped. These musical characteristics combine with the showgirls and jazz hands to emphasize the cheap theatrical qualities of Trump's candidacy. And they reinforce Kimmel's message that Trump is a phony candidate who entered the race for money and attention. Politics, he implies, has sunk to the level of showbiz. But with apologies to Kimmel, electoral politics are often as much about theater as they are about policy, as candidates try to grab the attention of the electorate in order to spread their message. The fact that we've seen an increase in the use of Broadway musicals both by candidates and the electorate speaks to the heightened theatricality of this particular election cycle. The most theatrical of these candidates is definitely Trump, and now that he has clinched the Republican nomination, history certainly has its eyes on him. Maybe in 200 years we'll see a musical about his candidacy. Knowing history has its eyes on me. This is Naomi Graber for Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. History has its eyes on me. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You just heard from Dr. Naomi Graber sharing her insight on two parodies of the popular Broadway musical Hamilton. Hamill Trump, 
created by sketch comedy group Rad Motel, and Jeb, an American Disappointment, a crowdsourced parody created on Google Docs. Joining us in the studio today, along with Dr. Graber, are Tracks on the Trail co-editor, Dr. James DeVille, professor of music at Carleton University in Ottawa, and Dr. Alyssa Harbert, assistant professor of music history at DePauw University, who focuses on issues of cultural memory, race, nationalism, and politics in dramatic productions for the stage and screen. I am Dana gorzlany Mostak, Assistant Professor of Music at Georgia College and creator and co-editor of Tracks on the Trail. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today in the studio. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. So I'd like to start, Naomi, by asking a question with regards to your essay. As Georgia College student researcher Sarah Kitts cited in our opening segment, the researchers at Tracks on the Trail have noted a, an uptick in stage and screen music on the trail. There's certainly been a lot of chatter about Trump's use of stage music in particular. You might know he's used Pavarotti's version of the uh, popera hit Nessun Dorma at several events. He's used some tunes from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats and the Phantom of the Opera. What do you make of Trump's choices? Those choices are absolutely fascinating. I, I'm not sure that it has a lot to do with the music itself and more what this music signifies. You know, Trump, when I think about Trump and I think about the Trump brand. There's two words that really come to mind. He, he's constantly saying that his buildings and his casinos are classy and that they are luxurious. And these are two words that really also describe the Broadway musical. And not just any Broadway musical. These two shows, Cats and Phantom of the Opera, are these big, huge spectacles. And they're so enormously popular. And when people go to Broadway musicals, they're expecting this beautiful, lush, classy experience. It's also something that people expect when they go to opera. And so I'm not sure that he's really using the music for the sound itself, but more, you know, what the music represents. You know, he's all about kind of class and luxury and musicals and Broadway and opera are signifiers of this, but it's a very middle class, class and luxury. He's not playing, you know, Handel operas. He's not <laughs> playing Wagner. He's playing these popular opera hits. So it's not just class and luxury, but it's class, luxury, and accessibility that's all sort of wrapped up in these kinds of music. Thank goodness he's not playing Wagner. <laughs> I think that probably wouldn't go over well. Well, you know how he plays an excerpt from the score from the film Air Force One as he disembarks from his private plane. I don't know, maybe he'll play Wagner at some point. He could always use Ride of the Valkyries. <laughs> <laughs> at some point. I wouldn't put it past him. I also think it's very interesting that he's chosen to feature a British musical composer. Obviously, Phantom of the Opera has become enormously popular in the United States and around the world, but Andrew Lloyd Webber and his lyricists are British. I read that Lloyd Webber used to own an apartment at Trump Tower from 1989 to 2010, um, as does another famous British musician, Elton John, who Trump has also played at his rallies. So the two clearly know each other, and Trump seems to be a big fan of Lloyd Webber in general. In his 2004 book, which was called Think Like a Billionaire, Trump stated that his favorite Broadway show is Evita by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which I think is just fascinating because Evita is about climbing one's way to the top through sex and money and politics. Um, and Ava and Juan Perón are, are these populist. Juan Perón is a, is a populist dictator of Argentina. 
not quite a fascist, but certainly edging towards it. And at one point in Evita, Eva and Juan Perón sing that politics is the art of the possible, which I think is such a Trump idea. So no wonder Trump loves it. You know, it's really interesting that you bring up Evita because I think it's, it's no one's really talked about this, but I think Evita is probably the closest cousin to Hamilton that there is out there. They're both shows about a poor person's rise to power. They both have these very ambivalent narrator figures that I find fascinating, Aaron Burr and Hamilton and Che and Evita. And they both use this very sort of pop-based score to show these historic rises to power. I think it's a really fascinating comparison. And to know that Trump really likes this show just tickles me a little bit. (laughs) Now, Trump, I don't think, has seen Hamilton yet. But I'd love to see some selfies of Lin-Manuel Miranda with Trump and Melania. That would be amazing. (laughs) One word that hasn't come up yet is uh, theatricality. Yet I think that links all of these works together. And and certainly you get a sense from Trump's um, appearances that they're all very staged and very well aware of what's going on, uh, what music is being played and so on, but in a spectacular way. I think that this idea of theatricality is key to Trump's campaign. He knows he's putting on a show. Everything he does, right from the music to the way he sets his stage, is designed to both entertain and inform. He knows that he needs to grab the public's attention before he can get to anything else and impress And I think the same is very true of Hillary Clinton, who has to perform exactly the way that she's been taught to to best position herself for her audiences to counteract some of the perhaps sexist presumptions that have been placed upon her over her long political career. Yes, very true. Alyssa, do you have any questions for Naomi? I do, Naomi. Thank you so much for that wonderful essay. I found it really interesting. Um, One of the traits that Hamilton and the producers and countless other Broadway shows have in common is that they're all set in New York City, and they all have what we could call New York City values, as, (laughs) as Ted Cruz infamously put it. Do you think that this plays a part in how appealing these shows are as vehicles for parodies of Donald Trump? Oh, absolutely. I think that that's a really good point. Um, I think that New York is also a major part of Trump's brand. New York is the classiest, most luxurious city in the United States, if not the world. And it is also the center of the American entertainment industry, along with Los Angeles. Uh, And so Trump himself is very identified with New York. He speaks with a very strong New York accent. And so using Hamilton and the producers really does emphasize this New York quality. But the the way they do it is very, very different. And that's what I find fascinating. So I think this all goes back to the idea of ironic distance versus ironic closeness. Um, When you think about Hamilton, uh, Trump is not someone you associate with the poor black neighborhoods of New York, uh, but that is where hip hop comes out of. It, It grew up partially in Compton, Los Angeles, but also in Brooklyn, New York, back when Brooklyn wasn't such a nice place to be. And so there is this sort of silliness to seeing Trump, this very rich, very white man, rapping because it's a style that's not really associated with him. 
when you think about the producers, Broadway is also very much part of New York, but very much part of a different New York. It's part of this middle class, middle to upper class New York, a New York that thrives on luxury, a New York that thrives on the new. And so that emphasizes the kind of ironic closeness between Trump's vision of New York and the idea of the presidency. As I said in the essay, the producers is all about theater. And we like to think that politics isn't theater. We like to think that there's something a little bit more genuine going on. But playing up Trump's New Yorkness through the lens of the producers really highlights his, what some people see as sort of his skeeviness, his deviousness, and his cheap theatricality. I'd like to just consider the issue you mentioned, the uh, uh, Trump's accent, and maybe bring Bernie's accent into play, because we would associate Bernie also with New York City, but with a different part, perhaps also a different class. What do you think about that? It's interesting. Both candidates have emphasized their accent on the trail, particularly the word huge, which they both pronounce huge. <laughs> but again, they're, they're sort of emphasizing very different things. Trump is emphasizing his New York as classy, New York as the sort of center of the world, where when Bernie does it, he's emphasizing his Brooklyn roots, his working class roots, New York as the scene of the folk revival. Bernie's been very associated with folk music and that mm. sort of thing. It's such a, New York is such a diverse place. You can really find almost any community there. And it's one of the things that makes it such a good stand-in for the rest of America. Yeah, and well, even Hillary can claim some part of New York as her heritage. Hillary sometimes will slide into a bit of a southern accent from her many years in Arkansas when she's speaking oh. in the south. Um, I'm down here in Texas, and I've noticed that every now and then Hillary will go with a, a more southern or rural-sounding form of speech. And also, of course, Obama has been known to do a bit of code switching depending on his audience. Hmm. I, I have a question for you as well, Alyssa. Um, so on June 4th, uh, Richard Primus penned a very thoughtful article in The Atlantic titled, Will Lin-Manuel Miranda Transform the Supreme Court? In it, he states, and this is a quote, how judges imagine the original meaning of the Constitution depends on their intuitions, half historical, half mythical, about the founding narrative. If you can change the myth, you can change the Constitution. Hamilton is changing the myth. And that's the end of the quote. You know, certainly the article sort of speaks to music's potential to act as a catalyst for shaping political policy. You know, the musical Hamilton's rise to prominence is, is coincided with, you know, what will be a change in composition of the Supreme Court, but, but also the 2016 presidential election. Alyssa, I know you're at present writing a book that explores depictions of U.S. history and Broadway musicals and how they may intersect with the politics of their time. So I was hoping that you could maybe shed some insight on how this particular musical, with its immigrant hero and multi-ethnic cast, has impacted American perceptions of presidential politics and U.S. history. I think that the question is about how we tell our founding story. As they sing in Hamilton, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Um, was the American Revolution something that happened long ago that was planned and fought um, by great men, by the greatest men, men far greater and wiser than we are? 
Or is the revolution a process that's ongoing, that's never finished? Is it a fight that has happened before and that could happen again? I think that when we see our so-called founding fathers singing and dancing on the Broadway stage, we can start to empathize with them. We see ourselves in them and we realize that we're not so very different. One of the goals of Hamilton, as well as the goal of the authors of another Broadway musical, 1776, is to take these historical figures off their pedestals and make them no longer cardboard cutouts, but make them real and alive and show them as flawed and very real people. And I think that Hamilton's multi-ethnic casting especially allows more and more people to identify with and empathize with the leaders of long ago, who were of course white men due to the power structures in place at the time. So we're looking at what Lin-Manuel Miranda has called America Then, told by America Now. And these shows give us a sense of ownership of the revolutionary era and of our mythical shared heritage. I also want to note that Broadway is more culturally relevant in a bigger part of the conversation now than it has been in several decades, really since the 1960s, the end of the so-called golden age of Broadway. Well, we're in a new golden age of Broadway. It's making more money than it ever has. Uh, the New York Times reported that Broadway theaters grossed a record-breaking $1.3 billion this past season, and that there were a record-breaking 13 million plus visitors to Broadway shows and Hamilton's a very big part of this unprecedented success. Speaking of 1776, which is a show I know is very, very near and dear to your heart, Alyssa, I have a, a question for you. Hamilton is very clearly indebted to 1776 and in fact Lin-Manuel Miranda directly references 1776 in Hamilton. So I just want to play these two little clips. Here's the opening of 1776. It's everybody in Congress shouting down John Adams, who's sort of the lead player of 1776. And now here is a clip from the second act of Hamilton. This is Alexander Hamilton reacting to the election of John Adams in the musical Hamilton. Sit down, John, you fat mother And it's interesting that you bring up the end of the 1960s because I think that's when 76 played. So could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between these two shows? Yes, I think that these shows occupy a similar place in our culture in some ways. Most people don't remember it now, but 1776 was an immensely popular and successful show. Um, it received overwhelmingly, I would say almost unanimously positive reviews in the press. It was attended by every celebrity and politician of its day and won four Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Um, Richard Nixon invited the whole cast to perform it in total at the White House, making it the first Broadway musical to be performed in full at the White House. Mm just as the Obamas invited the cast of Hamilton to perform there a few years ago. So that was in 1972. So we're looking at a Broadway musical that was, in its time, extremely successful and beloved, and has been ever since then. Um, in fact, 1776 has experienced a huge boom in popularity, in part by riding on Hamilton's coattails, and recent productions 
have tried to make the show look and feel more like American now with mixed gender and all female casts, mixed race casts, mixed ethnicity, and all sorts of different groups of people have become involved in 1776. And there was just a recent just a few months ago, an Encores production in New York City of 1776 with a mixed gender and mixed race cast. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda loves 1776 and he has often tweeted and written about it and he said that he didn't include John Adams or Benjamin Franklin in Hamilton because their stories had already been told so well by Sherman Edwards and Peter Stone in 1776. Um, I'd also like to add that both of these shows were by politically progressive authors, but neither show takes an obviously liberal stance at the expense of alienating potential audiences. So they're not heavy-handed about their political opinions, but they do cloak these liberal views in some coded ways that peek out sometimes, such as Hamilton and Lafayette singing, Immigrants, We Get the Job Done or the snarky anti-conservative song, Cool, Cool, Considerate Men in 1776. Um, 1776 and Hamilton both were shows that are beloved by liberals and conservatives alike. I'm already seeing some very positive reviews of Hamilton on more conservative news sites and blogs. So I think that the parallels between these two shows run very deep, and I love the fact that the popularity of Hamilton has given a chance for more people to see and experience and fall in love with 1776. I have a question that I think applies to both of you. As you've discussed, uh, Hamilton is in a direct lineage from 1776, but they both share a heritage of American exceptionalism and contemporary music style that's much older. And can you talk about the precedents from musical theater and what they tell us about the historical representation of American politics on stage? And Naomi, I know you've done some research in the early 19th century. And then Alyssa, you touch on more recent developments. So maybe you could both uh, comment on that one at a time. Sure, I'd love to. This gives me a chance to talk about one of my favorite shows out there. It's called The Indian Princess or La Belle Sauvage. Uh, and it was written at the turn of the 19th century by a man named John Bray. Uh, and it's not labeled a musical. That term didn't really exist then. It's labeled a melodrama. But what it really is is a musical. It has dialogue and it has songs interspersed throughout. This is the first retelling that we know of of the Pocahontas story for the mm. stage. Uh, it's a very, very old American story, of course, familiar to many of us from Disney. Um, but again, it uses musical theater to tell an American foundation myth, as 1776 does, as Hamilton does. And of course, like many shows at the turn of the 19th century, it does not paint the Native Americans in a great light. With the exception of Pocahontas, they are portrayed as savage. Pocahontas yearns to be civilized. And that comes out in the music. The music for the Indians is very, very simple, whereas the music for the Settlers and Pocahontas is much more complex, but again, it does it using popular music of the era. Mm. The American settlers sing what's called a glee in three-part harmony, something that people sitting at home when they had nothing to do after dinner might do. Um, it, it comes out in Pocahontas's arias, which have this sort of quasi-operatic style, which colonists could then purchase as sheet music and play at home. This idea of telling American history 
through popular music on the stage dates back to even before Broadway, to the very, very earliest cultural institutions of the country. That's really interesting, and the, the fact that they would use vernacular to uh, set the stage then and to make this story more approachable and um, then to be disseminated by the people who were in the audience. Yeah, that's very interesting. And since the beginning of the 20th century, there have been lots and lots of history musicals. Many of them were quite poorly received. Um, they would have been big flops that no one's ever heard of, but a few have done quite well. Uh, and as Jim said, almost all of them use the music that was popular at their own time rather than the music of the period that they're representing. Um, so Rogers and Hart, the same Richard Rogers who would go on to write shows like South Pacific and The Sound of Music, Rogers and Hart wrote a show called Dearest Enemy in 1925, which is a love story about a British soldier and an American patriot woman during the Revolutionary War. George and Ira Gershwin won a Pulitzer Prize for their 1931 show, Of the I Sing, which is a parody of a presidential campaign. In fact, oh. I wish I wish we could have a, a big uh, revival of Of the I Sing right now. <laughs> I would certainly go see it. Uh, I think it would also make a, a wonderful tracks essay piece if you're interested. It would. Um, <laughs> Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, the team that wrote Fiddler on the Roof, also won a Pulitzer Prize for their political musical Fiorello in 1959 about the oh, life yeah. of New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. And then for the U.S. Bicentennial in 1976, the Broadway greats Leonard Bernstein and Alan J. Lerner wrote a show called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that uh, pat parodied the presidents and first ladies of the 19th century. Um, but that show flopped, although you can hear a great recording of the songs on an album called The White House Cantata, so you should check that out. It's wonderful Bernstein music that you might not have ever heard before. Um, and then Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim, took up this subject of American political history and the presidents in Assassins to a very creepy effect. I just saw a wonderful community theater production of Assassins up in Indianapolis near where I live. Um, and then just recently we had Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, which is a rock musical. The music sounds a lot like Green Day. Um, and now we have Hamilton. And what all of these shows share uh, is not only their use of contemporary popular musical styles, but also the cognitive dissonance of singing and dancing historical figures, which mm. ends up delighting audiences um, and sometimes giving them a sense that they've learned something about history and also shared some of the emotions that these people of the past might have felt. I just want to add one more show to that wonderful list. Uh, 1938's Knickerbocker Holiday by Kurt Weill. Uh, it's another show that deals with this American origin story. It takes place in New York. This is the New York of the 17th century when it was New Amsterdam and it's another show that deals with the immigrant founding of America. Uh, these are Dutch immigrants. There's an entire song that's called How Can You Tell an American? But it's interesting that you bring up the fact that these people come away from these shows feeling like they've learned something. I remember watching 1776 in my elementary school class. Me too. And, yep, <laughs> uh, and I know that Hamilton has opened its doors to a lot of high school students in New York. Um, what makes these musicals such a good tool for education? And is there something about the musical itself that lends itself to these kinds of uses in the classroom? 
I think that musical theater brings these moments in time to life in a way that's very appealing to kids and teenagers. Uh, the energy of a Broadway musical, as we know, is so over the top, and the dramatic intrigues are made to feel very intense, even though we already know the ultimate outcome of these historical stories. Theater is riveting, and musicals are memorable, and what could be better for education than something that's riveting and memorable? Uh, 1776 was marketed in its time as educational both for adults and children and its songwriter the composer lyricist Sherman Edwards was in fact a former high school history teacher who had majored in history at Cornell and NYU and he and the book writer Peter Stone both had a mission to teach Americans about the revolution they were dismayed by how the founding story had been taught in schools and they wanted to bring these historical figures off their pedestals with music and humor. So they market it as part of your patriotic duty and education as an American. And it worked. Um, not only did thousands of school kids see 1776 when it was on Broadway, uh, but in the nearly 50 years since then, kids have been shown the film version in their history classes, and it plays on TV every year around the 4th of July. I would say that 1776 is still a big part of our cultural memory and several generations of Americans have learned something about the Founding Fathers from this Broadway show. Hamilton is also teaching kids today, um, kids and teenagers, not only the names and achievements of some of our great historical figures, but also what it might have felt like to be an immigrant orphan writing his way up the ladder of power or what it felt like to be a woman whose job is to marry rich or raise her children while her husband is off serving his country. And I think that the musical format can teach us more than just facts. It can teach us feelings and cultivate historical empathy, which in some ways is even more important than facts. We probably need to, to wrap up there. So I, I want to thank you all for being in the studio today with us. Uh, so you heard from Dr. Alyssa Harbert, Assistant Professor of Music at DePaul University, uh, Naomi Graber, Assistant Professor of Musicology at the University of Georgia, and Jim DeVille, Professor of Music at Carleton University. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Yeah, thank you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your wonderful contributions. This is excellent. Tracks on the Trail. This is James DeVille, co-editor of Tracks on the Trail. And for the song that represents where I think the campaign is at, I chose the classic Twisted Sister rocker, We're Not Gonna Take It, from 1984. In its day, the song was considered so rebellious and defiant as to earn it a spot on the Filthy 15 list of morally unacceptable songs, as branded by Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center. And then it underwent a gradual commercial transformation into an appropriate accompaniment for birth control pills and Paul Ryan's 2012 campaign. However, along came Donald Trump, who adopted it in September 2015 as a theme song for his campaign and as outro music for rallies, and everything changed. Even as the song captures the glam theatricality of the 1980s, 
it became a fitting musical embodiment of Trump's own theatrical self-representation, which has consistently and vehemently opposed accepted norms and standards for attitudes towards race, gender, sexual preference, and disability. At the same time, the Democrats, and especially Hillary Clinton, have ramped up their critiques of Trump, finding themselves forced into a vitriolic attack on those attitudes that rivals his in terms of bluntness and fervor. They're not going to take his provocations anymore. The press likewise claims to have entered a turning point in its coverage of Trump, no longer ignoring or ineffectually responding to his complaints of bias. Seems that the gloves have come off that no one is going to take it anymore. However the battle may end, it's clear that the song, We're Not Gonna Take It, has regained its position as meaning something important to a lot of people. This is James DeVille from Carleton University signing out from Tracks on the Trail at Georgia College. The Tracks on the Trail podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia College Department of Music and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tracks on the Trail was created by Dana gorzellini Mostak and co-edited by James DeVille. Canon McLean, Sarah Farmer, Andrew Sproul, Alyssa Harris, and yours truly, Sarah Kitts, provide research assistance. Victoriana Lord provides support for the TracksOnTheTrail.com website. Track social media is coordinated by Sam Campbell. The Tracks on the Trail theme was composed and performed by Canon McLean, with additional vocals from Ryan Sokolowski. Morgan Mendez mixed and edited the theme. Today's program was edited by Daniel McDonald. You can visit us anytime at TracksOnTheTrail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen out for more on SoundCloud.com slash WRGC.